Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Terry Lynn McClintock's transfer to an Aboriginal healing lodge has caused anger in Canada. Andrew Shear told the West Block there must be policy changes for horrific offenders. I spoke with Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney, about McClintock, and we talked about her parole possibilities. According to an Ipsos poll, there's a growing desire in Canada for politicians willing to break the rules. That's also the reaction in 26 countries globally. Michelle Rempel is a conservative politician, MP in Calgary, and she certainly is not shy to express her opinions. I spoke to her. Like war, the weaponization of social media, today's battlegrounds, increasingly are Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Peter Singer is the author of Like War, and we spoke with him. The Vancouver sex doll brothel is to open. What are the implications? Valerie Scott's the executive director of Sex Professionals of Canada. I spoke to her. It's fine for me to talk to the politicians. It's fine for me to talk to the uh, legal experts. It's fine for me to talk to um, people who have uh, an opinion based on the past or maybe their own involvement. But the raw opinions from Canadians is what we're going to hear for at least a while this hour. Now, my good friend Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor and uh, who was the president, the head of the uh, Office of Victims of Crime for the province of Ontario before Dalton McGuinty shut it down. Uh, Scott, also the former executive director of the Canadian Police Association. Scott was on the air with us yesterday talking about the rules and the regulations and some of the changes that have taken place and the changes which still need to take place. We've been fighting this for, for decades. I, I spoke with Scott earlier this morning, and uh, he's back with us. Now, Scott, thanks for coming back. And did you find something different about McClintock's eligibility for for parole? We've been uh, everyone's yeah. been saying twenty five years. Yeah, I think so. Uh, when I was uh, prepping for uh, yesterday's uh, show, and I had the media clips, there was something that actually uh, you know stuck out at me. And when we were discussing it yesterday, I just simply referenced that she was sentenced for twenty five year no parole, uh, twenty five years. And um, that's what it had been reported. And it just as I was sort of looking at it, as I got off the the air with you yesterday, I thought, wait a minute, something's wrong here. And I just sort of went back and I took a look because people, and this happens, you know, people forget the context in which changes are made. Um, the legislation was amended to get rid of what was known as the faint hope clause, which you and I have discussed cases about many, many times. And it was essentially... You know, where we said life uh, doesn't, in Canada, sentence for first-degree murder is life, no parole, 25 years. So life doesn't mean life, it means 25 years. And then we had this little sort of semi-secret provision in the criminal code that said, oh, but after 15 years, you can apply to get released early. That was what was known as the faint hope clause, even though once it came, uh, as we got involved in it, it was running at about an 85% success rate. And again, it was it was uh, symptomatic of the betrayal that you're talking about of uh, crime victims and ordinary citizens, and about being able to trust what their justice system says. I described it as our say one thing, do another justice system. It became a major, major issue for crime victim groups, the Canadian Police Association, to get this section repealed. And finally, uh, after the uh, the Conservatives were elected in 2006, that legis that faint hope clause was revealed, but. It was only repealed after the Conservatives got a majority in 2011. So I dug in and checked on the statute. It only came into effect on December of 2011, and this woman was convicted before that. And so what that means is, even though that law is not in place now, it applied to anybody who committed the murder before the section came into place. 
So in reality, she is actually able to apply still for this faint hope early release after only 15 years, not 25 years. Doesn't change the uh, the inappropriateness of her being transferred as she was transferred, and I think in breach of Correctional Service of Canada policy. But you always want to be a hundred percent accurate about this. So it looks as though instead of it being, you know, like uh, uh, 15 years off into the future, in fact, she is probably eligible to make her application uh, for this early release provision because we give her extra credit for time she spent awaiting being convicted. It looks to me like it's probably in about 2024 if she chooses to. It's not mandatory, but if she chooses to, where she could ask for early release. And here we, we've been saying, uh, everyone's been saying it's 25 years yeah. because Section 745 is gone. But you're now pointing out that she was convicted prior to the uh, ex- uh, adoption of the of, bill, of the bill yes. to get rid of Section 745. So her Section 745 application opportunity is grandfathered. Yes, that's correct. And it, and it has to be legally if, it, if they attempted to make it retroactive, it would be struck down. Same for Bernardo. Um, uh, he had it as well, too, and uh, had not applied. Uh, and, and that is the case. And as, as this stuff gets more and more publicity and more and more public attention, you know, what happens is is that, of course, the, uh, the courts uh, become less reluctant to do it. I remember you mentioned yesterday about the uh, Clifford Olson 745 hearing. I remember going out to Vancouver for that, and they had a pretrial hearing Okay, you know, to discuss the procedures and everything else. And Olson wasn't at it because the correctional officials deemed him too dangerous to travel. So his voice was coming in from a speaker on the wall. And I looked at it and I remember remember thinking, this is our our justice system. This guy is too dangerous to let out of prison so that he can legally ask to be released early from prison? Too, Too dangerous to be released from his cell? Yes. And in fact, I went to his actual hearing and to his subsequent hearing when, as you pointed out yesterday, the guy was a psychopath completely. He knew he wasn't getting out of jail, but he enjoyed being able to manipulate the system and people, and he did just, you know, unspeakable, horrible things just to inflict harm on the victims. Eventually, he was declared a a vexatious litigant by a Canadian court, and he was individually prohibited from communicating with the outside world because he'd done it so frequently yep. to the absolute disgust of most Canadians and to the horror of the parents and the families of his victims. Yeah, personally, I mean, um, one of the things that he did out in Vancouver was just unbelievably bad. I don't want to describe it because it was so horrific for the the one victim's family. Yeah. I always felt that uh, he was somebody should be that should have been subject to the uh, BITH rehabilitation strategy. Which is? B-I-T-H, bullet in the head. Yeah. And actually, uh, if you think about it, rehabilitation is, you know, having somebody return to a state where they no longer pose a danger. Mm-hmm. So I'd say Clifford Olson was successfully rehabilitated, just like Osama bin Laden. They're dead. Yeah. And for there, there are people who may be a little bit younger on the chronological scale who may not remember or be entirely familiar with Clifford Olson. He was a serial killer of young people, of children in British Columbia. And eventually was paid, or his family was paid, $100,000 well, so they, so that he would reveal where the bodies were. Yeah, the police didn't have the... Uh, he was also a career criminal uh, as well, too, who was released, who never should have been released, and an uh, absolute psychopath. Uh, as I say, I attended uh, three of his hearings, two of which uh, he was at, but uh, he exemplified. And I think what is a, a major failure that's exemplified by this case, the attitude and the culture within Correctional Services of Canada, that they don't differentiate between the different types of offenders. Yesterday you quoted the the former Liberal minister uh, who made that uh, I've got it right here. Jean-Pierre Goyer, yes. who was the Solicitor General in 1971, who said these words, we have decided from now on to stress the rehabilitation of individuals rather than the protection of society. Yeah. See, and, and I think the point of that is, is he, he misstated it. Uh, successfully rehabilitating people is one of the best ways we can protect society, but it's not an either-or situation. But that's what they made it. Yes. Well, you know, that's certainly, and and again, I think the, and the secretive nature of uh, Correctional Service of Canada, and I want to be fair, folks, for all of your listeners as well, too, there are, like, wonderful, highly principled people that work within Correctional Services of Canada. But yet the senior management of that organization seems to have this long-standing culture. You know, and I suppose if you think about it, give it, you know, think about uh, the environment in which they work, 
where they can do anything. Mm-hmm. Nobody gets to ask them questions. They're in charge of everything, and there have been several, multiple times, and indeed often with the assistance of the good people working inside um, CSE, where we've learned of these kinds of policy decisions that make no sense and undermine the confidence in our in our justice system, including corrections. Yeah, and remember, we spoke about this yesterday as well, Carla Homolka, who made the deal with the devil and got yes. the 12-year sentence in the murders of Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey. Yes. She had uh, that, that condo unit prison that she lived in. And, and, and this has always been so ob- 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 obtuse to me. She know, had her own room and she had a key the president has the key to the to the room. And remember, girls' night in, they ordered pizza, pizza from the local pizza joint. Yeah, and, and think of how stupid in so many ways, just completely counterintuitive, our system can be. We allowed her to change her name. That's right. How about Vince Lee? We allowed him to That's change his right. name. That's uh, right. No, that should not be the case. And you're saying, based on your research... That Terry Lynn McClintock is grandfathered Section 745, and so she'll have a, a faint hope early parole opportunity hearing after 15 years if she chooses to exercise the that option. It is my understanding in looking at the, uh, the legislation, uh, yes. But as I said yesterday, um, I actually agree with uh, Minister Goodale that this is not a circumstance where the minister should just snap their fingers and say, I want you to do, to do you know, like this change this decision. It should be done according to the rule of law, but as I uh, explained yesterday, I think it is fairly clear, based on what we know, that the decision to make this kind of a transfer was not in compliance with Correctional Service of Canada rules, and therefore the commissioner can correctly snap her fingers and direct that this decision be reversed, and the minister can look the commissioner and say, why aren't you doing this? And then let's also change the policies and change the laws as we discussed yeah, yesterday. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. All right, Roy. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association, and he was a Senior Policy Advisor to Stockwell Day when Mr. Day was the Federal Minister for Public Safety. I'm going to speak with uh, Dan McTague, Senior Petroleum Analyst at GasBuddy.com, former Liberal Member of Parliament, and expert on what's going on with the price of gasoline and the price of oil. And it's arguments all over the block here, Dan, uh, depending on where you are, who you are, what you believe in. What's the truth of what's happening with oil prices and gasoline prices? <laughs> in 30 <laughs> seconds. Yeah, in 30 <laughs> seconds or less, they're going up. Uh, we've uh, seen a summer of relatively calm prices, of course, here in Ontario, with the government scrapping the cap and trade uh, carbon tax. Uh, the shift from summer to winter uh, 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 fuel, it looks like uh, we've seen a probably about a 5 to $0.06 cent net decrease. So whether you're in Vancouver, whether you happen to be in uh, uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, uh, even the Maritimes, you're seeing a bit of a cooling down of prices. But that's about to really crank up again. A lot of it to do with the fact that... Uh, uh, the global supply of oil is likely to be constrained, and uh, much of that to do with the fact that on November the 6th, the uh, United States will have put into place its uh, full sanctions on Iran, and that really removes about maybe 4 to 6% of all the daily production of oil. About a million, million and a half barrels a day is likely to be moved off the market, so that's likely to send prices uh, uh, skyrocketing. Worse for Canadians because we don't like sending our oil to markets. We don't really care about this market. We allow a very small fringe group of people out there to block our pipelines. We're seeing, you know, in Saudi Arabia, the United States, uh, take your pick, uh, getting anywhere from $70 to $80 for their oil. And meanwhile, here we are. We're sitting on these massive reserves. But we, this is almost, you know, it's almost, I don't want to use the word farcical, but it, it is almost, if you were to present it to somebody who had no idea what you were talking about, who was being educated on the situation, and you were to say, we have these massive reserves of, of, of petroleum waiting to be uh, exported around the world, an eager world looking for it, but we have no way of getting it to them. But, it, but we, do, we do get it to our neighbor, the United States, but because we have them as the only client, we're selling them our oil at this massive discount, which has cost us $117 billion to our economy yep. over a recent seven-year period, as pointed out by Frank McKenna, the deputy chair of the TD Bank. But the person who, who's looking at, hearing this for the first time, would say, really? 
<laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and we're going to start to send a lot more by rail. So anybody who was concerned about the alternative to pipelines, look, we're going to get the oil one way or another to markets, especially the United States, uh, and that looks like rail. We've increased uh, from 100,000 barrels to 200,000 barrels in the past so oh, nine, ten months. We're going to 600,000 barrels likely by 2021. So anybody who was concerned about the environmental likelihood and disasters and human costs, associated with the potential for train derailments has no one to look at but themselves. But worse, for all the trendies out there who don't think that oil has anything to do with their standard of living, remember what happens when you don't sell your number one product uh, and get uh, global prices for it. You see a devaluation of the Canadian dollar, and that costs you and I, Roy, a 30-cent devaluation on everything we do. So, you know, I make uh, uh, 150 bucks uh, working a week. Well, now it's really only worth about maybe, you know, roughly speaking, about $30, $35, $40 uh, uh, less than what I think I'm making. So it really does affect everything. Every commodity is priced in U.S. terms. The fact that the world is getting global prices and the fact that Canada continues to fall behind really affects everyone's standard of living. And uh, people can continue to ignore this as much as they want. Uh, but at the end of the day, if they feel they got a little less uh, money in their jeans, it's for good reason. Ignorance has a cost. And hanging over our heads is NAFTA or no NAFTA, no trade deal with the United States yet. I mean, there's talk there may have one by the end of today. We'll talk to Catherine Swift about that in the next hour. But uh, at the moment, uh, there's also the possibility that we could end up in a nasty trade situation with our closest neighbor and massive neighbor who, whenever they do anything, the impact on us, well, it's, it's huge. Yeah. Well, exactly. And what, what could happen to things like auto would be very similar to what's happened. Yeah. What Canada's allowed us to, to happen with energy. Uh, you lose two. You know, two of your four major economic engines, you might as well start to shut the uh, shut the plane down because, frankly, you can't fly. And the country is going to uh, uh, be affected. It is already being adversely affected in ways that many people are trying to suppress. But the fact is that uh, uh, if we lose that side of it, if NAFTA is not successful, and I mean with no reservations, uh, then I think we're in uh, very we're we're in very deep and very we serious are. water. But yeah. we'll see. Yeah, uh, it reminds me of the story of the guy who's in the plane and uh, they're flying along, and suddenly an engine stops, and captain comes on and says, uh, "Sorry, we lost an engine, but this plane has four or had four. We can easily fly on three. We'll just be a little bit later." A little while later, boom, out goes another engine, and the captain comes out and says, don't worry, don't worry, folks. We lost another engine, but it can fly on, too. It's just we're going to be a little more delayed. And wouldn't you know it, a few minutes later, the a third engine goes out, and the captain says, don't worry, don't worry. And the, the, one of the passengers says, Matt, if this continues, we'll be up here all day. <laughs> or thank you for flying here to Canada. <laughs> thank you, Mr. McTague. All the best. And McTague, GuestBuddy.com. While Canadians seem more open to an unconventional leader who may break the rules, approval of leaders who are outspoken tumbled in the country. 51% of Canadians said they support politicians who say what's on their mind, regardless of what anyone else thinks. In 2016, support for that kind of attitude was higher at 57%. People want... People want... I hear it on this program. I've heard it for years, and it's growing. People want to hear from those who are elected to public office what's going on. They want to know what's going on. They also want, I believe, the majority of people want the truth. And when something doesn't make sense, don't try to defend it. Change it. Be honest. So as I'm reading this story, I was thinking, who, uh, who in Canada is like that? Who in Canada is completely outspoken, has no fear to speak his or her mind who's in politics, who takes it on the chin uh, for saying what's on his or her mind, but doesn't stop doing that and is respected by, I think, a significant majority of people. And that first name that came to mind to me was Michelle Rempel. Conservative Member of Parliament for Nose Hill in Calgary. She's also the Shadow Minister for Citizenship and Immigration. And Ms. Rempel had a very interesting exchange with one Seamus O'Regan on Twitter earlier this week. Here's how it went. Michelle, I would like to say I'm shocked you're demanding I speak publicly about personal health records of veterans, but you were part of a government that made it their job to neglect and disrespect veterans. 
as Rample retweeted and then replied, you're a ridiculous coward. You know damn well I'm talking about Christopher Garnier, a cop killer who isn't a veteran, but who you continue to give veterans benefits to, even though he's never served a day in his life. Do your damn job and revoke his benefits. You're a disgrace. So Michelle Rempel joins us on. I, I read that and I was cheering you. I thought, right on. Good for you. Good for Michelle. Because what you did there, Michelle, you spoke for me. And I think you spoke for so many people. There might be people who might, might take exception with some of the things that you said to O'Regan. But what we heard was, I'm not taking it and I'm going to speak up. Now, what makes you, and by the way, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, as always. As always. Uh, what is it that that causes you to say, I'm not taking this, I'm going to speak my mind, and here we go. What, what, is, it, what, is, it, what is it that causes you to do that, motivates you to do that? You know, so every week I fly across the country and I... Uh, spend a lot of time on a plane, and um, I do that because I think the most important thing that you can do in public service is connect with with the essence of that, and that is public service. I am I'm paid by the constituents in my riding to serve them, and that's not an academic exercise. It's not you know this ivory tower concept where you can kind of muse about this and that. It's, it's about people's lives. People are paying me to be their voice. And, you know, I always kind of visualize how many people I represent. And, you know, for me in Calgary, it's about five or six times Saddle Dome full. And that's a big responsibility. So people aren't paying me to be nice or to be academic and in terms of, you know, equivocating on, on things. They are paying my salary to be a strong voice to work hard for them and to do what's right. And, you know, there are opportunities and times, and, you know, I've done it many times in my career to work across party lines and, you know, understand different points of view and come up with good public policy. But what's been happening in the last three years under this government, you know, it's just, there haven't been a lot of opportunities for that. I mean, like the Chris Garnier case you just talked about, it, 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 it is basic. Like there is no, this man should not be receiving benefits from Veterans Canada. And you know, I mean, and you know what, like, Michelle? You can't argue that. No, and and Reagan knows that. Why would you defend that? Like, like I mean, look, I have been on the other side of the aisle. I've been in government, and that there's been times where there were times where we did things wrong. And I, you know, there were times when I've had to criticize my own party. But it goes back to that. I think you know when you're talking about what people want in terms of leadership is they want they want people who understand that concept of public service, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not there for cocktail circuit receptions or, you know, pictures or, you know, with Elton John. I am there. I have to be able to demonstrate to them that there was something, that they did something right in deciding to send me across the country every week. You know, And and that's what, I mean, I don't always get it right. Uh, And I I know there's a lot of others who, who... to try and do the same thing, but to me, that's where I think we all need to bring it back to every single every single time. You're also a very eloquent person, and you're you're not always uh, sending tweets such as the one that Seamus O'Regan deserved from you, because he, uh, you know, he took a shot at you. And, he did. What and, did he think was going to happen? Well, exactly. What did he back? think? Like, no. But but the game almost requires a toned down response. The only time that uh, that that politicians seem to shout at each other federally is during question period, and that's gotten to the point. I got there a long time ago, where most Canadians just know it's theater, or a lot of it is theater, and so they're not interested. What people want is the truth. They just want the truth. They just want to know that who's speaking for them or who's speaking for us is somebody who actually listens to us and has an idea of what it is we want. And actually, will bring that idea forward in their own caucuses, and uh, and beyond. I'm sure that you that you you get criticism. I'm sure that there are, and I've seen it on Twitter, and I've seen your replies. But a lot of folks, most people don't like to be criticized. Most people don't like to stand up and be noticed. Most people don't like to be criticized. 
how do you handle criticism when somebody comes back at you and says, whatever you talked about, whatever the issue was, whatever the stance you took, whatever the strong position you put forward, and you're criticized for it, how does that affect you? Well, I guess I would qualify that by saying not all criticism is equal, right? right. I mean, there's criticism that's given from a place of love and 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 from people who genuinely desire to either um, see see a very positive outcome, who might see something differently than you, who want to build something up rather than tear it down. And, and when that comes in, you know, I, my chief of staff, for example, um, you know, he gave me some criticism a couple of weeks ago. I was like, well, fair enough. Like, I mean, and again, like, because we're rowing in the same direction and it's criticism to, you know, get us to that place, right, so that we're not going off course. That is, that's great. That's, that's healthy. But it's, you know, then, then there's the criticism that is not designed to get to the right place. It's designed to silence you or to, you know, depress you to the point where you just want to give up. And there's a lot and of that. There's more of that now than there has been for some time. That's, become, is, that's but, become prevalent. You know, I, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I, I now know seven years into this, uh, what, wh- who, who's a bot on Twitter or, you know, who, who, who is just a, somebody who's just a partisan who, who does not care about um, good public policy. Like, I, I know the difference. And I know people who just don't like, like, just want to silence me because, you know, there, there's that old adage of saying, like, if you're if you're over the target, you're going to be taking flack, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess people don't pay, again, people don't pay my salary for me to be self-victimizing. They don't pay my salary. They pay for me to stand up and do what's right, even when that's tough or hard. And, you know, once you've done that a couple of times in a public forum, it does get easier because, you, again, you go back to that sense of public service. When I come home to Calgary, to the people I represent, I can look at them and they're like, yeah, thanks for doing that, right? And, you know, there are times, and again, like, you never, you can't bat a thousand, you're going to get things wrong, but it's that ability to listen to people who, 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 who do have the best interests of the country or the community at heart and are like, hey, I appreciate what you're doing. Have you thought about this? No. You're in a position to affect change versus just saying like, you know what? You are just trying to silence me. Like, Seamus O'Regan, like, come on. Like, what do you think that tweet was? That tweet was a cowardly little tweet because he knows, he knows. Like, can you imagine standing up in the house over and over and over again for a week instead of, I'll be honest with you, like, Roy, if, if I had been in his shoes and I had been in cabinet, I would have walked down into the ministry, into the program level and said, who did this? Who made this stupid decision? And you have one hour to fix it. I need to know what policy change needs to be made. And I need to know how this is done. Like, you have an hour. I will be sitting in my office. Who is accountable here? Because that, that's your job, right? That is so, your you know, job. he's coming at me to to defend this, and it's like, no, I'm not going to like, you know, I'm not going to be silenced on something like this. Michelle, and, like, let there me, are a lot let, of people let me, who let me, won't, let me take a quick you know? break. Let me take a quick take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk more with Michelle. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So, Michelle, a couple of questions that I have to ask you, and we have about four minutes left here. How does how sure. does what you do? Because you are you you just call it the way you see it. How how does that resonate within inside the party? You know, we've just got such a great team. I'm glad you played that clip from Andrew. Um, when all of this was un- unfolding, the 
you know, the Garnier case, the Terry Lynn McClintock case this week in the House of Commons, um, he, at one point, he was so frustrated and angry, you know, he beckoned over to me and he's like, we've got to go out and we've got to scrum on this uh, outside of the House of Commons. That's when you go and talk to media right after question period. And he did. I, I'm just so honored to work with both him and a lot of the people in my, my, my caucus, both both on the House side, on the Senate side, who they know that Canadians are tired of people who are in Ottawa for their own sake rather than the people that okay, they so they so they're on side with what you're doing. They're, yeah. There's no now. Are, do you see yourself as a voice for? You mentioned your constituents. I'm glad you did that because Mulroney got angry with me when I interviewed him at the end of his career as Prime Minister, and I pointed out to him that most MPs are basically just mouthpieces for the leader. Uh, you know, and that's that's the way it, that's the way it's been. Clearly, you have freedom to say what what you what you feel needs to be said. Are you a voice for Alberta? I sure hope so. Okay, I, <laughs> I mean, I I have to be, and I and 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 look, I, I'll say this in the context that um, as a federal politician, and this is where I think Trudeau has failed. You have to make policy that is in the best interest of yeah. every region of the country. But yeah. at the end of the day, the people who elect me are the people in my riding. And of course, I have to stand up for them. Oh, and of course, I'm going to stand up for, um, you know, some of the stuff that's really been hampering my my riding. But I have to be. But at the same time, I also have to say I'm Canadian, and I'm going to stand up for policy that's in the best interest of this country. I think we can do both. It's a it's a combined responsibility. Let me get a couple of quick sound bites from you on some issues. We have a minute and a half left on the issue sure. of uh, of McClintock being in the Aboriginal Healing Lodge. First thing that you say is. I mean, what what's what needs to be said here? Uh, it's wrong. She is a convicted and confessed child killer. Uh, conditions of her her sentence include not being around children even after she's released. I believe uh, this just needs to be fixed. Yeah. I mean, there's no equivocation on this. Are we making progress on the border? Um, I think our party is in terms of policy. I I don't think that we will see any change in this, unfortunately, under a Justin Trudeau-led government. And uh, can we expect Michelle Rempel to stay in politics for some time? I hope the answer is yes. I I think that's a question for my constituents, to be honest with you. And as long as I have a clear answer to the question, how, why am I doing this and how can I affect change? Mm -hmm. If my people decide to give me that mandate, then that's, that's their decision. Okay. Thank you for the time. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Take care. Michelle Rempel, Conservative Member of Parliament for Nose Hill in Calgary. With little time left ahead of a deadline to agree to a renewed NAFTA, Canadian and U.S. trade officials on Sunday tried to settle differences on tough issues such as protection against American tariffs. The administration of U.S. President Donald Trump said Canada must sign on to the text of the updated North America Free Trade Agreement by midnight, EDT, on Sunday, or face exclusion from the trilateral pact, which includes Mexico. Trump blames NAFTA for the loss of U.S. manufacturing jobs and wants major changes to the pact, which underpins $1.2 trillion in annual trade. Markets fear its demise would cause major economic disruption. And I think that may uh, be an understatement. Catherine Swift is the former president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. She's an economist. She's also, of course, a weekly contributor to our Beauties and the Beast and was described as Canada's most powerful woman, and that's not an understatement. So, Catherine, if you were in uh, in in that last day of... Assuming you'd been there for a while, so you're in the last day, the last gasp of uh, of negotiations with a midnight deadline looming. What's the focus have to be? Lots of cups of coffee, probably. Um, I I would think uh, this, the focus would be getting a deal. Uh, this has been going on for quite a while, as as we all know. Um, it is hugely important to Canada. Yes, important to the U.S. too, but nowhere near as much. Uh, and 
to, to, you know, be looking at. I mean, I've heard rumors, and again, you know, we won't know until we see the actual deal, but I've heard that there has been some movement on dairy, which was a sticking point, as we know, for the U.S., um, and the, uh, you mentioned the tariff protection, obviously, is a huge, you know, a huge consideration, because we've already had them imposed on steel and aluminum, and the auto thing would be the mother load. Um, and, of course, the dispute resolution mechanism. Those are, those are things, and I think, I, I, I agree that, frankly, I think, you know, it would benefit Canadian consumers if we backed off on our dairy system while having a transition that's fair, you know, fair to people in the industry. But the other two, you know, the, obviously the, the um, having some guarantee tariffs won't be imposed and the dispute resolution, I think, are hugely important. So the story goes on to say U.S. business groups oppose turning NAFTA into a bilateral deal because the three nations' economies have become closely intertwined since the original pact came into force in 1994. So that's that's obvious. Uh, and there are many states, particularly border states in the United States, that do not want to see Canada excluded from the from from a NAFTA or whatever it is, Mr. Trump is going to insist on calling it. Um, is the internal pressure going to be sufficient? Do you think to force Donald Trump's hand? Uh, is he just? Is this theatrics? And the eleventh hour, he's going to step forward and make some sort of, I don't know, grand gesture. Well, I, I think it's largely theatrics, yes, but he does have an unpredictable side to him, as we yes, know. Yes, he does. You know, I, I, you know, you can't rule anything out. Uh, but yeah, there's there's tons of interest in the U.S. Uh, in in having this deal trilateral and and the economies. It would be like unscrambling the omelet, which you know it, we look at the auto sector, which is a, a hugely important one. Yeah. I'm not even sure how you would impose tariffs because a typical vehicle, in many instances, crosses the border several times. That's right. Uh, to have different stuff done to it in yeah. different specialized facilities. So, you know, obviously it's in everybody's best interest so, here to have a decent deal done, um, certainly in ours in Canada, but also in the U.S. So I would hope, you know, sensible objectives would, you know, would, would prevail and, 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 and thinking that has everyone's best interests at heart. NAFTA has worked well for all three partners, and no question, there have been transitions. I mean, no trade deal, if it's, if it's worthwhile, is, is, is without changes, and some of them are initially negative. But when you look at the net effect, it's been beneficial for all three countries, and Trump often doesn't have his statistics right, too, as we know, yeah. in terms of trade, you know, balance and so we, on and so forth. We have about 30 seconds, so what's the impact on the average Canadian? What's the impact on Canada and Canadians if nothing comes out of this? Well, I think one of the, fir- well, it's scary, scary is what it is, and job loss is, is of course, significant uh, for virtually all parts of the country, some more than others. Um, uh, we would certainly have a, a very quick, I think one of the first impacts we'd see would be a quick decline in the Canadian dollar. And what that means is our money is worth less. Therefore, we're paying more for every, <laughs> every single thing that we're bringing into the country. So I think consumer, you know, consumer prices would see it initially. We might have to see interest rates move, which people with debt would, would get hurt by. Those are just early, you know, reactions, because if this thing does die, I don't believe it will. I think the stakes are high enough. Everybody's wants to make a deal here. Yeah, hope so. Catherine, thank you so much for the time. My pleasure, Roy. Peter Singer is a war strategist. I'm reading from a review on him, a business owner, a best-selling author I know about Peter Singer, and an expert on mercenaries and robots. He's also the author of uh, a new book, Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. And I think this is absolutely fascinating because in 2016, clearly, uh, social media was used as a weapon and very effectively, maybe before that. And uh, what lies ahead? What are the, what's the potential for social media, particularly given the fact that legislators people and people who write policies are usually far behind the innovative minds and the innovative abilities of folks who are actually on the ground working in, in technology, and in this case, in social media. So much seems to happen on. I mean, can you go through a day without talking about Facebook, without Twitter, without um, without uh, YouTube? And last night, I was just driving my car into the garage, and here's this young lady riding along on her bicycle, not paying attention to where she's going. She's got her phone right in front of her face. She's got headsets on. She's got her phone literally like six inches in front of her face. And I'm thinking, this is the way of the present and the, and the future. Maybe, Peter Singer, as we go forward, there'll just be a, a computer chip in our brains. We won't even need phones. <laughs> uh, maybe that's the future. But, you know, it's funny in terms of the idea of um, 
addiction. The beginning of the book tells the story of Donald Trump's very first tweet. Uh, you may not remember that. No. But it was, um, when he was actually, uh, it announces an upcoming appearance on the David Letterman show. Um, his Trump uh, is at a crossroads. His TV series, The Apprentice, is starting to go down in the ratings. And so he turns to social media to advertise that he's going to be on TV. And, you know, how much has changed since then? But, you know, one of the things that then happens is, just like the rest of us, he becomes addicted. Uh, the, the, the technology is literally uh, designed to make you uh, become addicted to it. And it you know, kind of rewards your brain and emotions in different ways. But of course, just like you hit it, it's become uh, a weapon that can be used in um, everything from actual wars to influence elections, you name it. You know, I was, uh, I was just thinking when I first heard about your book, and was approached about interviewing her. And thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Um, one of the first thoughts I had was how ISIS, at the height of their miserable time, and they haven't disappeared clearly, but they were using social media to their absolute maximum benefit, and they were drawing in people, young people, whose lives revolved around social media. That person who's riding along on the bicycle with the with the phone in front of their eyes or the person who is at the checkout counter, oblivious to the fact that everything's been checked out because they're on their phone, that they were, uh, they and other organizations have used social media to their ultimate advantage. Um, so could you put some perspective uh, for us, before I ask you how this all started, but where are we in the, uh, in the realm of social media being weaponized? Where, where are we? Where, where do we stand? So to hit your question in terms of um, ISIS and, and the weaponization of it, uh, ISIS as an organization arguably wouldn't exist without social media. It was part of its rise against um, all the other uh, rival terrorist groups out there. Uh, it establishes a brand. Uh, it uses it to convince some 30,000 people from around the world to travel to Syria and Iraq and join it. But um, as you note, it also uses it to reach into uh, populations uh, to inspire people to commit acts of terrorism, whether it's in uh, Orlando or Paris or, or whatnot. And, um, and, and they use those acts of terrorism to promote themselves bingo. on social media. It, it both inspires it, and then they also use them as almost like brand marketing moments. And um, it's this mix uh, of a network engaging in this way. So it has over 50 different kind of official media sources online, but it's also got literally tens of thousands of different accounts out there communicating. And importantly, one of the lessons from the book was it wasn't just the sheer scale of it. It was the way that they were doing it. And this is where you get these strange things that play out in, in what we call like war, uh, the idea of you know hacking a network, um, hacking the idea ideas and people on the network is that many of the exact same strategies that, say, ISIS's top recruiter was using online. He's a guy named uh, Junaid Hussein, who was a failed rapper from um, Great Britain, who then goes on to become the top recruiter. He's using almost the same exact tactics that um, the pop star uh, Taylor Swift is using to build her own online army. But of course, it's, you know, an online army. Hello, Peter, are you there? Peter Singer is back with us. Uh, his book is Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. Sorry, we lost you there. You were talking about the chief recruiter uh, for ISIS. Yeah, it seems maybe we're being hacked uh, in terms of the Maybe so. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so, yeah, the, the top recruiter for ISIS was a failed rapper uh, named Junaid Hussein from the U.K., uh, goes on to join the group, but what's fascinating in these, these like wars, these, you know, trying to hack the conversation online, is that he was using almost the exact same tactics that Taylor Swift was using to build her own online army, to push her own message. Um, and, and so what's kind of playing out here is that you have all of these different groups with very different goals, but they're all playing out in the very same space of social media that we use. So, you know, it's Trump calling to our attention, ISIS calling out to our attention, um, pop stars and the like, and we decide which voice wins out. And what a willing, hungry audience they have. Absolutely. And um, in turn, that audience can help uh, drive that message viral. 
and in a world where attention is power, not just power online, but that you can turn it into real-world power, uh, that's crucial. You know, if you're thinking of the story of Donald Trump, uh, one of the people that we interviewed for the book was a top political strategist, and he went through all the different reasons that Trump shouldn't have won. You know, everything from his um, his personality uh, to he had far less newspaper endorsements, um, campaign money, uh, offices in each county, and yet it's because of his strategy online that he's able to win out because he's able to pull so much attention in, and then in turn his campaign is able to uh, micro-target voters in a way that wasn't previously possible via f- Facebook. Uh, Trump's rise is a really great illustration of both the power of Twitter and Facebook. And the people who tried to emulate him, his opponents, they failed miserably because they didn't get it. Absolutely, you can um, compare, for example, you know, one of the the keys in this space is uh, authenticity. Uh, for people to believe it truly is you. And that, when you go through polling, um, you know, for all his faults, that's the one attribute uh, that Trump constantly gets credit for, from even people that, you know, don't like him, they'll say, but it really is him. You compare that to uh, Hillary Clinton, for example, her tweets involved as many as 11 people writing them. And so (laughs) she was a real person, and yet people didn't see her as real. Uh, Peter, there's so much we have to cover in the time we have left. Social media and the end of secrets. Talk to us about that, please. So we're in a world now where we have literally billions of sensors uh, gathering information. You know, the camera um, on top of the phone in your pocket. Uh, but also behind-the-scenes uh, information. And I don't just mean the photos uh, that might you know something in the distance, but also the geolocation, magnometer, and the like. And so combined with social media, where we all have the power to share that information out there, essentially we're entering a world where there's no more secrets. And you can see it on the military side. It's changed uh, military operational planning. You know, compare, say, uh, the secrecy of D-Day and the Normandy invasion versus one of the stories in the book is how the bin Laden raid was supposed to be top secret, and yet there was a Pakistani cafe owner who was up late at night, heard the helicopters come in, and he did the new natural thing. He went on to Twitter to complain, and his complaints double as these live battle reports. But you also have the political side of this. Uh, For example, one of the stories in the book is uh, one of the first uh, politicians to be uh, sunk by the idea of a camera and the crowd. And you, you know, compare that to now politicians would be mad if there wasn't a camera in the crowd. People weren't, you know, live broadcasting everything that they were saying. And of course, the secrets also the loss of our own secrets. And you were talking about that uh, earlier on, where you know everything from millennials taking twenty six thousand selfies to uh, there's a way using um, basically algorithms to bind all that information together and um, based on a certain number of Facebook posts, actually uh, we can figure out more about your likes and dislikes and your personality and your psychology than even your own family. You know, everything from figuring out color uh, preferences, political preferences, you name, all by combining the information together. Yeah, the, the whole paradigm has shifted. Everything has is, is shifted. Win the net, win the day. The new, new wars for attention and power. If you get the if you have get the attention, well, we just talked about it, Donald Trump. If you if you get the attention on the net, you win. If you win, you have power. That simple. And of course, there's a turn on that. So there may be no more secrets, but you can now bury the truth underneath a sea of lies. And that's the yeah. other side of the back and forth, the, uh, best illustrated by the Russian disinformation campaigns that have targeted elections you know, everywhere from the United States to France to Norway to even recently the Mexican election. And uh, that strategy of pushing out false information, false personas, uh, that's something that everyone else is looking at what tr- Russia pulled off and saying, hey, we can do that too. And so, like so much else of this, it's not going to go away anytime soon. And everybody's doing it. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, just to give you a a number version of that, the Brexit campaign, about one-third of the online conversation 
was generated by false bots and the like. And of course, the online conversation is so crucial to not only people who depend on the online world for their news and views, but it also then shapes what the newspapers, uh, TV, radio say. Uh, move forward two years, the Mexican election just a couple weeks ago, one-third of the online conversation generated by fake bots. Oh, I have to ask you, are you short on time or can you stay with us a little longer? I can stick with and we, and we also got uh, taken offline for a little bit, so happy to join. Oh, good. We're going to take a break in a minute, so I, and then after that we'll come back with you. This is really, really interesting stuff. Now, I was thinking as you were talking, uh, then there's the dark net. Where does th- that feature, or where, where does that enter the equation? So one of the um, areas that illustrates this this end of secrets is the use of social media by criminals, and it might be uh, cyber criminals. Uh, and you know, as you know, there's the dark net, which is essentially kind of think of this as a, a network that's not covered by a regular Google search or the like, and it's where cyber criminals uh, trade their wares and skills. It's like a marketplace. But we also see um, cyber criminals out in the open advertising services on Facebook to the more traditional criminals. Uh, you know, in the book, it talks about everything of the use um, of this by Chicago gangs to uh, Mexican drug cartels. There's actually um, a picture in the book of he's a assassin for a Mexican drug cartel. And he would post everything from, you know, photos of his gold-plated AK-47 to the like to when he went to Las Vegas and what we call photobombed Paris Hilton. Uh, He didn't actually, you know, shoot at Paris Hilton. He basically pops up behind her and gets a photo of himself with a celebrity. And it's part of kind of showing off what he can do. And the thing about these, these uses of social media in this way by these different groups, it kind of circles back to the questions that you know, surround uh, Donald Trump right now. Uh, it's all fun and games, um, but they also, in their battle to get attention, uh, they pick fights uh, and the like, and sometimes they're real-world consequences. And so it's been part of, the, for example, the spike in uh, crime wave and murder rate in Chicago. Most of the beefs start online. And it's what a lot of people worry about related to the president. Are there things said online that actually um, might be taken seriously and might have real impact? Do you, do you think that uh, Donald Trump's tweets have the kind of impact that they had uh, maybe a year ago? I mean, depending on the situation, depending on the – in this country right now, we're very much focused on NAFTA and whatever Mr. Trump says about NAFTA, we're paying very close attention to. But in, in general, are his tweets having the same impact that they did a year ago? They're having the same impact in that he is by far the most powerful online influencer. Uh, he's like a, almost like a death star in you know, steering the ray of attention to anything and everything that he wants. Now, he's not having maybe some of the same impact in terms of the outrageousness, you know, things that um, would have been previously shocking. Uh, he's kind of used up that well, and so he has to even go to other extremes uh, to do so. Uh, There's a big question, though, that everyone from, I'm sure, the Canadian government to our own government is trying to figure out is when do his tweets actually have the true standing of policy itself? That is, when he tweets something, does it actually count as the exact policy? And you can see that in everything from um, trade uh, potential war questions to right now, uh, as we're speaking, you have this potential FBI investigation of um, a Supreme Court justice nominee, and it seems to be going in one direction in terms of the White House is limiting who the, uh, the FBI can interview, but then Trump tweeted, oh, no, no, we're not putting any limits on it. So the FBI is going to have to figure out, do they take the tweet of the president for what they're supposed to do versus the actual written orders coming from the White House? We spoke yesterday on the program with a veteran FBI agent, the number one uh, speaker on the the speaker's tour, and uh, he pointed out it's going to be difficult enough for the FBI to carry out its mandate in a period of a week. They don't need to make any more challenging and then be able to present a report, a a coherent and cohesive report, or at least a coherent report at the end end of the week. Is this going to be the? Is this is this the? Uh, are we witnessing? Not never mind the future. Are we witnessing the present? And God knows what the future will bring when it comes to political campaigning. When it comes to polit- politicians who are either in uh, in charge or, or or close to being in charge, 
and are bypassing all of bureaucracies and everyone in between them and the electorate and saying, this is who I am, this is what I want, and given the fact that we are such such an adoring of social media society, doesn't that just give them an absolute leg up? Every time you get a new technology, it changes the kind of politicians that win out. Uh, whether it's the telegraph, uh, for example, in American history, um, if there hadn't been the telegraph, uh, Abraham Lincoln never would have become president. Then you get the power of what we're on, uh, radio, and, um, for example, FDR and how he does his fireside chats right, and the right. like. Then you get TV, and then suddenly politicians have to be telegenic. Uh, they have to be attractive and able to talk on television in a way that wasn't previously required. And, of course, we've seen the impact of that and everything from you know, American to Canadian politics. And then now you have social media, and it rewards different things. And um, in particular, what's fascinating is whether it's Donald Trump to uh, pro-athletes to ISIS to uh, reality show celebrities, all of them have talked about they love social media because, one, it allows them to get around the regular media, and, two, they can be their own editor. Uh, it's like owning your own newspaper, and you get to control the message, and you get to push it out there. And, of course, the problem is that then rewards you know, sometimes it rewards good things, other times it rewards bad things. And really what has to happen, just like uh, all of us had to, you know, on the other side of it, had to learn to catch up to understand you know, what was playing out on TV or what was playing out on the radio. We also have to understand what's playing out on social media uh, to make a little bit of a, a parallel to the game of poker. If you sit down at the table and you don't know who's the mark, you're probably the mark. <laughs> Simple. Uh, you know, as you were speaking, I thought... There isn't one story, there hasn't been one development, there hasn't been one event of reasonable interest, never mind massive interest, but reasonable influence, that has not been affected by social media, or that has not been perhaps directed by social media, or which has not changed course because of social media. And given that social media is a fairly recent phenomenon, I know you, you talked about the telegraph and about the radio and about television, I get that. But it's done it so fast, and the buy-in has been so massive, and it's been so available when television first arrived on the scene. Uh, I was a little kid in England, and we had, uh, uh, we had uh, I was about four years old, and we had the first television on our block. And it took a long time for people on, to be able to get a television. But phones, man, you've, people are carrying one and probably carry, got three more in a, in a drawer somewhere that still work perfectly fine. This, is, uh, this has been absolutely massive, and the buy-in has been so enthusiastic. And you write about the new rules and the rulers uh, of like war. Talk to us about that, please. So one of the other sea changes of all of this is that you've had, you know, over the course of just a couple of years, these what are almost like digital kingdoms take off. And, of course, they're, they're kingdoms that we all use uh, in terms of whether we're directly online and we're using them to share our vacation photos with our family or companies are using them to market or politicians are using them, we t like we talked about, uh, terrorist groups. We're all on that space. But the difference is that a literal handful of basically tech geeks run these kingdoms. And they have become some of the most powerful actors in all of politics and war today, even though they're not all that interested in politics and war. You know, so if you think about the story of Mark Zuckerberg, he creates uh, originally what's called Face Mash in his dorm room just as a way for fellow students to rate who's hot or not. And then now he's suddenly in the midst of um, you know, questions of what, what's allowed to be said on Facebook or not. How do we limit Russian disinformation, warfare, et cetera? Or you, know, you were given that example of James Woods on Twitter. Twitter starts out as a way for basically people to, um, both for companies uh, to instant message and to do this at um, raves, at dance parties. And then all of a sudden, the company's you know, trying to figure out everything from uh, what imagery is allowed online, um, free speech questions of not just you know, James Woods, but uh, the Alex Joneses of the world, all the way to the ISISs of the world. And so it's, it's shaking up uh, politics. And, and what's important, again, is even if you're not on these networks, it's still shaping all the other media networks. So, for example, Twitter, not everyone's on Twitter, 
but 96% of journalists are on Twitter, so they're getting their ideas of what to cover on right. the radio or in the newspaper right. or TV or the like. Absolutely correct. In the minute or so we have left, what surprised you? When you come away from all the entire exercise of putting putting together this fascinating book, what what was the biggest surprise to you? The way this technology could be used for just some of the most awful things in the world, but also some of the most admirable stories. So you get just the absolute heights of the good and bad. So you get, you know, the story of ISIS and just, you know, these horrible things that they're doing online and how they're rising because of it. But then you also get the story of, for example, this uh, Muslim American woman who creates what she calls her Dumbledore's Army, which is basically uh, teenagers who go out online and try and argue back against ISIS, modeled after what happened in Harry Potter. So it's these just incredible extremes that was probably the biggest surprise for me. So at the end of the day, it comes back to the vagaries of human nature. Absolutely. And in, 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 in social media, we control our accounts, so we get to decide which one wins out, whether it's the good or the bad. It's International Podcast Day. A uh, perfect day for Peter Singer to be our guest. Uh, like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. Fascinating, fascinating uh, book with relevance to everyone. Peter, thank you so much. You're a terrific guest. I appreciated the time. Very Stop much. You. Appreciate joining you. Thank you. Peter Singer on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. Valerie Scott is with me. Uh, she is the executive director of... Um, What's, what's the organization called, Valerie? I'm sorry, I'm having a brain fade here. Sex Professionals of Canada. Of course, SPOC, Sex Professionals yeah. of Canada. Thank you for joining us. It's been a while since we've oh, talked. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So here's the story. It's, uh, I saw it in the Star of Vancouver. Vancouver sex doll brothel, a sign of diminishing demand for sex workers, says Professor. And uh, as Vancouver prepares for its first uh, sex doll brothel to open in November, one expert says it signals a shrinking market for sex trade workers in the city, and the expert is Becky Ross, a professor of sociology at the University of British Columbia and the Social Justice Institute, and she says the dolls offer an alternative for clients targeted by current legislation. She says, quote, business is already constrained and restricted due to Bill C-36, which regulates sex work in this country. It criminalizes clients as well as sex workers who advertise services. Now, you and I have spoken in the past about Bill C-36 and everything that revolved around that. And now, what do you say to this this development, this story about Vancouver's sex doll brothel, a sign of diminishing demand for sex workers? Well, a couple of things. Uh, I uh, think that there isn't really um, diminishing a diminishing demand for sex workers. Um, you know, it waxes and it wanes, but... A diminishing demand for sex workers, that would be a first in human history. Uh, it's all underground now with the current legislation uh, known as PSEPA for short. Um, and it, uh, clients are fearful because they're, they're afraid that we are the police doing a sting. However, it's strange that we can have uh, robot sex workers, if you will, uh, have a brothel, but for five decades, human sex workers have been fighting and going to court uh, in order to have a brothel, yet we cannot. It's odd that humans can't, but robots can't. And not even the Supreme Court of Canada could adequately deal with the issue uh, either the first or second time they've got their hands on it. Uh, I'm sorry. On the, on the legislation, that? the Supreme Court of Canada wasn't uh, wasn't able to properly deal with the issue of of, uh, they, of 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 sex workers. Yes, they did. I I, I was one of the three plaintiffs in the, that case. I know the, you were. The, the decision on December on December twentieth, two thousand thirteen, they agreed with us. Yeah. But um, that that sex workers should be able to. Have their own brothels and have their own. Didn't they? Didn't they stumble? The, didn't they stumble the first time they were at it, or am I thinking of a different level of court? Uh, no, there were three levels, and okay. uh, okay. it's the second level that stumbled. Okay, but, so uh, the situation remains unsatisfactory to the sex workers yes. of Canada, 
And it, and and now this this whole idea of mechanized sex workers, right? It's just weird. Well, uh, it is, but I I don't really have a problem with it. I think that as they are currently, um, they're not really a threat to us in any way in terms of competition. They're very different. It's like um, a really jumped up super jumped up sex toy and that's what we're talking about here okay. these women are the non-human sex workers uh they don't speak they don't have uh, consciousness they right. uh, don't have feelings and despite what prohibitionists and religious fundamentalists... My dear, I'm, 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 I'm sorry, Valerie. We only have about 20 seconds. The time got away from us. Oh, no. Okay. Um, look, we give... What, we, what real sex workers do is emotional labor. Right. A lot of um, intima, emotional intimacy. Okay. And a machine can, at this particular time cannot compete with that. Thank you, Valerie. I'm sorry we ran out of time, but we'll talk again. I do appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, Valerie, thank you for having me. Valerie Scott from uh, Sex Professionals of Canada. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.